This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. More than two out of every five Americans believe that civil war is at least somewhat likely in the next decade. A couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden delivered a landmark speech warning that the extremism of Donald Trump's Republican supporters now threatens the country's very democratic foundations. You can't love your country only when you win. Of course, Donald Trump hit back. The enemy of the state is him and the group that control him. This week, we go inside the January 6th insurrection in the company of Luke Mogelson, who was there reporting among the protesters, to find out if political violence is now an immovable part of the US landscape. And we ask, if there's a path to a more peaceful democracy, how can America find it? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Well, I was in Paris at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I had just returned from uh, reporting in Raqqa, Syria, during which U.S. warplanes had basically wiped Raqqa 
uh, off the face of the map and, and left a wasteland of utter destruction. The likes of this week, I'm joined by Luke Mogelson, whose new book is The Storm Is Here, America on the Brink. It tells of his up-close eyewitness reporting of the January 6th attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill and the events that led up to it. Luke Mogelson is a seasoned war correspondent regarded as one of the finest of his generation. For The New Yorker, he's covered the wars in Iraq, Syria and Ukraine. But in 2020, he turned his reporter's gaze to his own country. And when I spoke to him, I began by asking him what first alerted him to the signs that in the United States, a storm was coming. When I came back to Paris, Already in the U.S., there were reports coming out of Michigan of far-right groups and militias mobilizing against public health policies and lockdown policies. And in Michigan in particular, in April, they had a mob of furious armed men had entered uh, the state capitol and intimidated and threatened uh, lawmakers. So when I saw the images coming out of there, I realized that there was something of a of a link between the violent rage and kind of fervor that I was seeing in the U.S. and the chaotic destruction that I'd witnessed um, perpetrated by uh, my country and, and other countries. So you made this decision to, in effect, embed yourself for the best for over a year or best part of a year embedded among the MAGA movement the make America great again movement the out you know the wilder shores of the pro-Trump uh, movement they call themselves patriots with a capital P uh, you, their first sort of eruption into public view was it exactly as you say that storming of the state capital in Michigan but just tell us what you saw there before we got to January the 6th. What were, you know, what was it that joined these people together? What was, what did they believe? What did they want? So while I was in Michigan, I was following various groups that were mobilizing around public health policies and the lockdown. And most of their anger was actually concentrated on law enforcement, the police officers, the state troopers, and federal uh, agencies who were charged with implementing some of these uh, containment measures and policies. Then in late May, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. So I, I left Michigan, um, drove to Minneapolis, spent three weeks covering the, the protests and the riots there. When I returned to uh, Lansing, Michigan, the capital of Michigan, I was surprised to discover a really dramatic reversal in the attitude of all of these anti-lockdown, previously anti-lockdown groups towards law enforcement. Suddenly they were carrying thin blue line flags, which is a symbol of solidarity with law enforcement and declaring that they back the blue and really positioning themselves as an anti-racist anti movement that opposed Black Lives Matter and uh, the affiliated activists. To anti 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 racism. In other words, they're against the BLM movement. They're against these black protesters. Exactly. 
that's important. You're suggesting that the the grievance constantly changes. It sort of it mutates. What that suggests then there is some underlying grievance, something that yes, it latches onto whatever is the cause of the day. But actually, this what do you think is the thing underneath it that is driving these self-styled patriot protesters? What's their thing? I think it's important to distinguish first of all between genuine grievance grounded in reality and actual injury and illusory injury and grievance that has been you know essentially fabricated out of uh out of thin air by purveyors of conspiracy theories politicians and pundits who 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 benefit from stoking outrage among this uh demographic in in, in the US when you spend time with these groups i mean nobody stormed the capital on january 6 because they were upset about the economy that's not what's really fueling some of these people to commit acts of violence and to feel as though they are in the fight of their lives in a kind of epic even cosmic struggle between good and evil This is what your book charts so brilliantly, because you do describe that they really believe that this is an existential, I think you've used the right word, cosmic battle, almost something out of kind of Lord of the Rings or something, where they think it is Satan and good and evil and the fate of the universe. And they believe they're plotting against these sort of satanic paedophiles, people who want to, you know, kill all Americans, destroy the world. And and it just seems so wild, and yet you're you're up close with these people. They're telling you directly to your face what they obviously believe, uh, and you even overhear them talking to each other, which is some of the most uh, revealing material in the book. To what extent do you, we know that the foot soldiers believe it? They're lapping this stuff up. But to what extent did you believe the people at the top? And you know that would even extend to Donald Trump. But the people pushing out the QAnon stuff and all the others. Do they believe it or are they grifters? Are they cynically thinking we're, make, we're turning a, a profit here by propelling what we know is nonsense? I do think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to get inside someone like Donald Trump's head and, under, and, 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 and guess at, you know, whether or not he's sincere um, in his beliefs or just cynically disingenuous and whether or not it would even be possible to distinguish one from the other. But... Interestingly, the recent January 6 hearings offered some degree or a hint of clarity for this question because we do know now that essentially everybody in Trump's orbit did not believe that the election had been stolen. His daughter, his attorney general, his lawyers, his advisors, his chief of staff all testified that they believed Joe Biden had won and that um, they had encouraged Trump to concede. So let's talk about January the 6th um, directly. Let's go with you inside the Capitol because you were right in the midst of it. Um, just tell us about the the moments uh, in, that led up to it. I mean, in the crowd, when Trump was speaking, to what extent did you feel from the people surrounding you that, yep, they knew and were bent on storming the capital and overturning this election by force before they'd done it. Did you feel that was what was brewing? So there had been two Trump rallies in D.C. prior to January 6th, which I also attended, one on November 14th, known as uh, the Million MAGA March, and then another one on December 12th. 
And at both of those, you had the same groups that spearheaded the attack on the Capitol in January, the Proud Boys, the America Firsters, uh, the Oath Keepers. And on both November 14th and December 12th, they really ran roughshod over downtown DC. They were vandalizing historic black churches, attacking random black pedestrians and cyclists uh, in broad daylight, blocks from the White House. I witnessed this uh, myself. And after each of them, Trump published tweets kind of celebrating and endorsing uh, the conduct of those supporters. So by the time January 6th came around, it was clear that in all these same people that had already worked themselves up into a frenzy at the previous two events uh, and not been punished for it or held accountable or called out were emboldened. Then when Trump, uh, during his speech on the National Mall, told them to go to the Capitol. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. That essentially just redirected this kind of nebulous rage and desire for for vengeance, searching for an outlet. It just directed it to straight up the mall to to the U.S. Capitol. And you were there in with them as they stormed in, the shattering of windows, breaking down of doors, you were with them. Did you think, and it's been you know, a big part of it, of, of, of including the House committee investigating it, has been how lethal a threat they posed. I mean, what was the atmosphere like? Did you sense that these were people who, if they had got hold of a Mike Pence or a Nancy Pelosi, they would have been in a mood to kill them? Well, there there are witnesses who have told, you know, prosecutor, federal prosecutors in the FBI that they um, were with groups of Proud Boys who participated in the insurrection prior to January 6th and heard them saying that if they got their hands on lawmakers or even specifically Mike Pence, they would kill them. So, you know, I think I think uh, we have to take them at their word in that regard. But my impression was that the degree of violence and the the kind of communal mob desire and will to commit violence at the Capitol depended on whether or not the law enforcement officers that they engaged with resisted or acquiesced. Any officers who kind of, you know, stood down were accorded, you know, the, the usual kind of typical uh, conservative uh, deference and, and respect uh, for, for people in uniform. In terms of the crowd you're with, again, those of us who just saw footage of it around the world, we did see the people carrying the Confederate flag. We saw some of the other you know, iconography around them. There was this very chilling image of one rioter wearing a T-shirt saying Camp Auschwitz and on the back said staff. In some ways, I wondered of myself, are we all sort of overthinking this? And this actually is just a very classic white supremacist racist movement. I think that it's certainly propelled by those elements. You know, we uh, we wouldn't be in this situation without those beliefs and, and ideologies under the surface of this movement. What we saw on January 6th is that those groups and individuals who espouse those beliefs 
require a mob that's less extreme than they are, more broadly accepted uh, by the public in order to really gain a kind of critical mass to inflict lasting damage on, on the country. All of this goes to a question which arises from the speech Joe Biden gave a couple of weeks ago, uh, in which he really turned on and blamed Donald Trump for being at the head of this movement that threatened democracy in America. But he did draw a distinction between MAGA Republicans, Make America Great Republicans, and what he still wanted to believe are mainstream Republicans. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. And I and others have wondered if that distinction really makes sense anymore or whether the whole of, you know, the Republican Party has more or less thrown in its lot with this brand of politics. I mean, the kind of things you describe in the book, you know, I reported on the on the ultra right in America, the militia movement in the 1990s. They always existed, but they were on the wilder shores. They were fringe players. And now one wonders if they are actually at the heart of things. Do you think Joe Biden was, you know, wrong, mistaken to think that there is some distinction between Republicans and the kind of movement, the kind of politics that you lay bare in this book? I don't think he was necessarily wrong. I don't think he had much choice. I mean, he was castigated for it regardless by most Republicans. It reminded me of the reaction among Republicans to a report in 2009 that was issued by the Department of Homeland Security warning that right-wing extremism uh, was a growing threat uh, to the country and to, to democracy. So this was very early in Obama's tenure. And Republicans were, were furious that, you know, a federal agency would dare to highlight the menace posed by by right-wing extremists. And those same groups were the early progenitors of the Patriot Movement, which ultimately stormed the Capitol on, on, on January 6th. On Joe Biden, do you think he should have used the F word in his speech? Should he have branded this movement fascist? I'm comfortable calling it fascist. Really, the, uh, I'm not uh, probably not the best person to ask about what uh, you know a, a, a president should or shouldn't say publicly. Absolutely, but in terms of your own view, uh, I mean, I have to say, reading your book, the words seem to fit. I mean, you you know, if we think that central to the uh, belief in fascism is this insistence on an all-powerful leader. The way they talk about Donald Trump, I mean, you have them several times referring to him as Emperor Trump. It does seem to, to you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. So just on your own judgment, did you believe the movement that you were embedded in and saw in unusually closely merits the description as fascist? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, one obvious tell is that their principal enemies and kind of most uh, abhorred foe are anti-fascists. Violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa, 
and other radical left-wing groups. I think it was November four, the November 14th rally uh, in D.C. I uh, watched a, a young Trump supporter give a speech and he ranted against, you know, the parasites invading the America and engorging themselves on our beautiful country. And, and you could see that he was almost kind of reveling in the taboo of the things that he was saying and the words that he was using. And I was standing next to a couple of other young Trump supporters in their, in their early 20s. And I noticed towards the end of, of this speech that they were kind of laughing and giggling, which seemed like an incongruous reaction to the rage and violent rhetoric that we had just heard. And then one of them said to the other, kind of giddily, he just gave a fascist speech. So there's almost a there's almost a thrill of transgression, I think, among certain of the most fanatical uh, supporters of Trump in their renunciation of democracy, basically. Reading this, one does fear for the future of the American Republic and whether indeed it will remain a democratic republic. You know, it's not your job because you've just described the problem, but do you, to what extent do you believe there is a way back for America to go back to a situation where whatever their disagreements on the issues of the day, all sides accept the basic democratic rules of the game? Is there a way back to that, do you think? Frankly, it's difficult to see one. I have a hard time imagining any scenario in which Democrats win national office and Republicans simply accept the results. So I'm not sure how you put that back in the box. I mean, the distrust in the electoral process has been so successfully inculcated by Trump and his allies that it's it's hard to imagine them not continuing to leverage that and and exploit that with an eye towards creating a system in which either they never lose or anytime they do lose it's contested both in a system that they've rigged to their advantage and in the streets with actual physical violence it's a chilling um, prospect. Luke, we always ask our guests on the show a what else question, something completely different. As you and I speak, the Washington Post has reported that a document describing the military defences of a foreign power, including its nuclear capabilities, was among those documents found by FBI agents when they searched Mar-a-Lago, the residence of the former president, Donald Trump, including apparently details of top-secret U.S. operations so closely guarded that even many senior national security officials were kept in the dark about them. They were among the papers reportedly purloined and kept by Donald Trump. What do you make of that? Well, at this point, it's it's hard to be surprised by any uh, of his transgressions um, or instances of contempt for political norms. But 
What's even more uh, disturbing, I think, is the lack of concern and outrage among his supporters and essentially half the country who have come to see him as such a, uh, a victim of these nefarious, fantastical forces that we referred to earlier, that any allegation or accusation against him uh, can be dismissed as an effort to silence him, but also them, the people who, who support him and vote for him. Luke Mogelson, the book is The Storm Is Here, America on the Brink. I've read it. It is compelling and uh, chilling and, 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 and an important book to understand what's happening in today's United States. Luke, thanks so much for coming on Politics Weekly America. Thank you, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. Make sure to head to theguardian.com for this weekend's coverage of the Queen's funeral. Also, what's happening in Ukraine and everything else. But for now, it's goodbye. The producers were Ian Chambers and Danielle Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.